Hello, I'm uh, Peter, and I'm going to be reading the Bible tonight. Uh, the Bible reading is John uh, chapter 20, verses 19 to 29, um, and that should be on the screen behind me. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to have you all here. Uh, if we haven't already met yet, my name's Ken and I'm one of the pastors here at Wollongong Baptist Church. Uh, as John said, today we're continuing our series, Conversations That Matter. Uh, and just a quick plug, uh, we have about six or seven copies of this book left out on the desk. Um, they're only $5 and it covers a number of the topics that we've looked at over the last few weeks and we'll look at over the next two weeks. So if you're getting quick, uh, there's a few more of those left. Um, as John said, tonight we're thinking about the topic, hasn't science made God irrelevant? And I don't uh, claim to be the expert on all things scientific. I feel a bit nervous that a, that a physics HSC marker and writer is here in the audience. Uh, but science and maths were my favourite subjects at school. Uh, my first degree was a Bachelor of Applied Science in Physiotherapy. Uh, and so science has always been a personal interest of mine, uh, continued to be when I then studied theology and became a missionary and pastor. So at the outset, I think it's really helpful to, to think about the limits that the wording of this question intentionally places on our subject. Hasn't science made God irrelevant? The, the reality is that these days many scientists, philosophers, atheists acknowledge that it's actually impossible to confirm or deny the, the existence of God conclusively. Uh, it's a limitation of science, part of the nature, as Pete said, what science is. But those same people then insist that based upon science, this is the only logical conclusion that we can come to, that, that God is irrelevant. And so Richard Dawkins wrote, we cannot, of course, disprove God, just as we can't disprove Thor, fairies, leprechauns and the flying spaghetti monster. Who knows whether he's there or not. But like those other fantasies that we can't disprove, we can say 
that God is very, very improbable. Even if it is a theoretical conceding of there's a possibility that somewhere out there that there's a God somewhere, the bigger issue as defined by them is that in the end it doesn't really matter because he has no impact on our lives, which I think everyone will agree would mean that this is a significant question that we need to think through, whether we're older like me or younger and maybe it's not as big an issue. Now, at the risk of being considered incredibly unscientific, nonetheless, I'm going to pray and I invite you to join with me in asking God for his help as we think about this. Father God, we do thank you for the opportunity we've got to think about real issues, things that uh, in the past have been massive issues that continue to be the basis for, for being able to say, oh, I don't need to believe in that. Uh, as we think about science, its relationship to the world, to us, to God, uh, that you would enable us to think clearly on this issue, to understand ourselves better, to understand what science is better, to understand you. Uh, so I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, my first experience of science, my first exposure to it, was through very persuasive television ads just like this one. Balance a toothpick on top of a match. Uh. Forks into a cork, the toothpick into the base. Place it on the match, gravitational forces bring the forks into balance. So too, Cadbury Dairy Milk Chocolate has a balance of goodness and great taste. The glass and a half of full cream dairy milk in every 200 gram block provides substantial nourishment, enjoyment, and that great Cadbury taste. Mm. So when you think of chocolate, think of Cadbury with that famous glass and a half. Balance it to... <laughs> if Professor Julius Sumner said it, surely it must be true. Who am I to disagree? Now, to supplement my TV education, my parents did send me to a Christian school, and so my early exposure to science was through this, this grid of a Christian worldview. As part of that, arguments were presented that said there's a compatibility between Christianity and science. The, the pioneers of science, many of them were Christians. As science continued to develop and become more and more persuasive, many of the leaders in their fields were Christians. And even till today, that continues to be the case. So belief in God didn't limit their ability to do science. In, in many cases, it often was the motivation for them to be uh, even better than others in their fields. So surely science and Christianity are compatible. They can get on together. But then in 1993, I headed off to university. I took my, uh, my place in a class of more than 200 undergraduate students, sat down for my first lecture in anatomy at Sydney University. And the professor stood on the stage and held up a bone in the air. With the first words of my course, she declared, this is a human rib bone. And despite popular opinion to the contrary, men and women have the exact same number of them. Now, notice that she didn't pick up a thigh bone and say, this is a femur, and men and women have the same number of them. Now, she'd purposely picked a rib because the implied criticism was that when Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 says that God took one of Adam's ribs and created Eve from it, well, clearly, science shows that the Bible's wrong. 
Now, prior to that moment, I can't recall if I had ever even considered rib equality. And yet, I didn't feel the need to question the methodology by which she had come to her conclusion. Others far more qualified than I was had done these scientific investigations. And if their conclusions were wrong or dodgy, well, they would have been exposed by now, surely. I didn't spend the, the next decade investigating if what she said was true. With all the objections, I accepted, well, sorry, with no objections at all, I accepted that it is a fact that men and women have the same number of ribs. And I think that is what we commonly do. We accept the scientists' conclusions because, well, they know more than we do. When the scientist tells us that we need to eat less sugar and do more exercise, we at least assent to it in our heads that that's what we should be doing. When the doctor tells us that we need to get a, an immunisation before we go on that overseas holiday, we don't argue with them, oh, I need a second opinion, please. So if science has made God irrelevant, don't we all have to just go along with this conclusion? Isn't it potentially dangerous to ourselves if we try to deny it? Well, as any good scientist doing research would, let's begin by defining the terms in our question a little. The Australian Academy of Science has given us this useful working definition. Science can be thought of as both a body of knowledge, the things that we've already discovered, and the process of acquiring new knowledge through observation and experimentation, testing and hypothesising. Now, I don't know if that's an English word or just a science word, but anyway, it means that science is two things. It is both the process and the conclusions that come out of the process. The scientific method is to view the natural world and try and figure out how it works. Science observes, it makes hypotheses, it tests those hypotheses until it finds the one that best accounts for all the evidence, that has predictive power to say, this is what's likely to happen. And so, so science says that if we drop two objects of different weights, well, let's see what happens. It was obvious, wasn't it? As a result, we might come up with a hypothesis along the lines that objects fall at a rate dependent on their weight. That's what we might think, but a scientist, they ask more questions and they find out that if you drop two balls of differing weights, well, they fall at the same rate. And so they come up with a new hypothesis and, and further experimentation. And if you conduct the original, the same experiment, now in a vacuum, well, let's see what happens this time. Now, if you go on to watch the rest of the video, it's on, it's on YouTube. Um, it's, it's really funny because there's a whole group of scientists sitting around watching what is a well-known scientific fact, that things fall based upon gravity, and they all go, wow, isn't it amazing? <laughs> uh, see, that's, that's what science achieves. It digs around and it uncovers. It uncovers what's really going on here. And the conclusions that it comes to are then accepted as science. There is no question of the ability of science to produce amazing results. Technology that allows us to talk to someone in another country or allows us to travel and go and visit them. Technology in medicine that's eradicated smallpox, that gives us knowledge of the, the human body so intricate that we can do heart surgery or even replace a heart. Observations of the universe explaining stars and planets, having such good knowledge that we can predict down to the, the moment when a, a, a comet's going to come past or when the next uh, eclipse is going to happen. Most of us came here in a car, I assume. 
You're all hearing me through speakers. We've seen videos displayed up on a screen. Science has given us many great benefits. As we investigate and experiment, make hypotheses, test them, correct incomplete theories as we discover more information, we're able to explain more and more how nature really works. So the question tonight is really, has science done its job so well that we no longer need God to explain anything? Stephen F. Roberts suggests that one of the mistaken hypotheses that science uncovers is the existence of God himself. Aimed directly at Christians, he's written that I contend we are both atheists. I just believe in one fewer God than you do. When you understand why you dismiss all the other possible gods, you will understand why I dismiss yours. My university professor's statement exposed me firsthand to the passion with, with, which, with which this contradictory viewpoint is held. Rather than partners, science and the Bible are considered to be in opposition to each other. They're rivals fighting for our, uh, to be the basis of what we believe. And so it's claimed, well, you've got to choose one or the other. You can't have both. I think the reason for these conclusions is that over time, science has progressively stripped away all pre-scientific beliefs. Called the God of the gaps theory, it's claimed that God was proposed as the answer for natural things that we didn't have an explanation for. Thunder from the sky, ah, God's speaking. We have an earthquake down here, ah, God's angry with us. But as we keep pushing the boundaries of science, of knowledge the scientific explanation for all of the natural phenomena that was attributed to God, well, we actually understand now why it's taking place. Have a read of Leviticus 26 verse 4, I will send you rain in its season, and the ground will yield its crops and and the trees their fruit. This is God speaking. But science observes the water cycle, and we know how, how water evaporates and then condenses and falls somewhere else. Psalm 139, verse 13, For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God claims to to knit us together, but science can now explain how cells divide and specialise into all the different parts that make up our bodies. Ever since Copernicus and Galileo, everybody knows that the sun doesn't actually rise. Based on observation, we now know that the earth spins on its axis allowing light from the sun, which is not moving, to come to us, who are moving, which is clearly a contradiction of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. Hurries back, it's not moving, we are. We also know that the earth is like a giant ball, and so the insult of being called a flat earther is strongly linked with Revelation chapter 7 verse 1's claim that the earth has four corners. How can a ball have four quarters? So combine these biblical, that is, unscientific beliefs with accounts of miracles, angels and demons rising from the dead and the suspicion just becomes scientifically unacceptable. None of these things can be repeated in the the laboratory. All of the scientific evidence seems to be pointing in another direction. God's contribution can't be observed, certainly can't be measured. And so the conclusion is that the Bible must now be considered as nothing more than a fairy tale, like a magic trick that fools people watching. In the past, the Bible was able to trick naive people. 
but as science uncovers what is really going on, well, there's no need for us to continue believing in God. Stephen Hawking, the brilliant physicist, summarised, before we understand science, it is natural to believe that God created the universe. But now science offers a more convincing explanation. We don't need him anymore. Now, I think that one of the reasons that science is so convincing to so many is that it holds itself accountable to facts, as demonstrated by my personal favourite scientists, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. They're a little bit older than this now. Now, if you're not familiar with these two, they're a pair of Aussie scientists who did research on stomach ulcers. Typical medical advice before their research suggested that treatment involved avoiding stress and avoiding certain types of food. But based upon their scientific observations, these guys came up with this idea that the collective wisdom of medicine up until that point was just all completely wrong. It was a myth, a fable. They discovered that peptic ulcers are primarily caused by a bacterium called Helicobacter pylori. Say that three times fast. Now, Marshall proved it to a sceptical medical profession by actually ingesting, he took it, he swallowed it, uh, with a potential, potentially fatal dose of this bug without telling his wife beforehand that that's what he was going to do, by the way. Now, nobody believed that bacteria can live in the intense acid that is in our stomach. But these guys proved that it did, and it causes these ulcers. It's the stuff of legends for which they earned the Nobel Prize. And I think it's a great example of why so much trust is put in science. Science is not ashamed to acknowledge that its theories are always developing. Conclusions are always open to further discoveries. If we find out something new that's true, well, we've just got to add it into the, into the existing theories. Science is bound to follow the evidence no matter where it goes. And because of its commitment to evidence, instead of blind faith in God, well, we can take destiny into our, into our own hands. But is one of the great strengths of science also its biggest danger, that we do take it into our own hands, that a method, science is, is neutral or very close to it, but that it is used by people who are not. They're not neutral. Now, whether it's intentional or not, Many claim to give science the highest authority, but then live in direct contradiction of what they know. Gambling, eating too much fast food, driving while texting, are all known to have bad results. And yet how many people live in contradiction of the facts? I still remember very clearly as part of my, my uh, training as a physio, got to go to Prince of Wales Hospital and sit in on an operation. It was, a, it was brain surgery, literally. And uh, after the brain surgery, came out of the operation, was walking out of the hospital, and there are all the medical professionals who've just been involved in surgery, still in their surgical gowns, smoking cigarettes. What is going on? This, this contradiction between what they know and how they behave. In an increasingly scientific world, why is it that alternative medicine is so popular, that feng shui is a thing? It's claimed that science has made God irrelevant, but then many choose to ignore science, what science has to say on a lot of other issues. Why must science be followed to rule out God, but then he can be ignored? Science can be ignored for other issues, other issues which are, are much clearer. 
the inconsistency raises the question of what is the real motivation. And you don't have to be Einstein to recognise that motivation can get in the way. Some claims have obviously been made that mix science facts together with science fiction. Think the Cadbury ad that I showed at the start that tries, off, tries to pass off chocolate as a balance of nourishment, goodness and taste. Now, we'd all love for it to be true, wouldn't we? But sadly, we know that it's not. Chocolate is not a health food. Now, we can see the ad for what it is. But at other times, motives remain far more deeply hidden. We all interpret facts through a pre-existing grid of beliefs, whether we're aware of it or not. Presuppositions mean that the exact same evidence can lead to very different conclusions. So according to some, the fossil record isn't proof of evolution, but the proof of a worldwide flood. It's not that people deny the existence of fossils and what they are, but the conclusions that are made differ. Now, I put my anatomy professor's claim into a similar category. I have no doubt that men and women have the same number of ribs. My, my intellectual curiosity has been uh, confirmed as I've done physio. But based upon science, we also know that there is no more reason to assume that a removed rib would become an inherited characteristic than an amputated leg would become the new normal for somebody's child. The logic is just not there. It doesn't make sense. Now, perhaps some people have read the book of Genesis and concluded that men and women have different numbers of ribs. But that's both bad science and a terrible reading of the Bible. And along similar lines, to assume that the Bible is wrong because it speaks of sunrises and four corners of the earth is to ignore that humans have always used figures of speech with which to communicate. Otherwise, why does the, the Bureau of Meteorology still continue to persist in using this idea of the time of sunrise and sunset? It's a scientific organisation. We need to read the Bible on its own terms. And the Bible is not a science textbook. So we need to stop reading it like it is. Now, sometimes there are different but equally true explanations for exactly the same thing. Why is the water boiling? Well, because electricity is converted to heat, which is transferred to the water molecules. The molecules that receive sufficient energy change from liquid water into water's gaseous form. What you can see there, the bubbles are not air, they're steam. Um, that's what's going on. Well, true enough, but the reason the water is boiling is it's time for a cup of coffee. One is the explanation of the physical process taking place. One is the explanation of purpose. See, they're not contradictory explanations fighting it out for which one is right. They're both true at the same time. So does God send rain or is it the result of a scientifically describable process? Well, why do we have to choose? I've certainly never heard of a Christian who doubts the existence of the water cycle. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to wait for the Bureau of Meteorology to solve the current drought in Australia. I'll pray instead to the one who set up the water cycle, who put it in place and continues to water his earth by these means. We can live inconsistently with science. We uh, can have presuppositions so that science can be a mixture of true facts and questionable conclusions. 
there can be different but equally true explanations of the same phenomena. But the last weakness I'd like to point out is that some things are simply beyond the scope of what science has the capability of analysing. So there is no scientific tool that can measure the beauty of an object or a person. There's no experiment which can be done to determine why do people climb mountains. No double-blind study can be done to conclusively determine whether pineapple is an appropriate topping for pizza. I love my wife and my kids, and there's no blood test that can confirm or deny my claim. See, science is a powerful tool, but it's not the appropriate tool with which to answer every question. For a multitude of reasons, some which we have looked at briefly tonight, science is often considered the ultimate authority on all things. But I think that if we give this authority to science, it's an authority beyond its ability to cope with. This is not dismissing science or saying that it's wrong. It's just acknowledging limitations, just as the scientists themselves do. Well, what do I mean? Well, let me give you an example. I said at the beginning that the year of my first anatomy lecture was 1993, and the location, Sydney University. Well, how do you know that what I said was true? See, it's certainly not repeatable. No experiment can prove or disprove what I claim. Like a crime scene investigation, science may shed some light on what happened in the past, but it can't tell us everything. The first thing you'd have to do is find out that it was Sydney University Cumberland campus, not main campus, uh, and, and there's a whole lot of other things. Now, even if we could perfectly recreate the events from a secret video recording that was filming in the, in the lecture theatre, we still don't necessarily know the reason for why certain things were said. You could attempt to find out who the anatomy professor was back then or interview one of the 200 other students who were allegedly in the room at the same time. But even if you were able to get someone to confirm or to deny the events as I've reported them, that's not science at work. As we do that kind of investigation, we're analysing history. We've strayed into the realm of cross-examining witnesses, of testing the likelihood of claims, of character assessments. And when we do an investigation like that, there are far more relevant tools to be using than science on its own. And so I think there are good reasons to doubt the claim that science even has the ability to determine that God is irrelevant. The presupposition necessary for that claim to be true is that the natural world is all that there is that exists. And God reveals in the Bible that he's not even a part of the natural world. He created it. He sustains it, but he's not a part of it that we can interact with like water or gravity. So is there a better basis upon which we can have confidence that God is relevant if we can't get there by science alone? Well, Christians are convinced that Jesus, investigating Jesus, is the best track to determine if God is relevant to us doesn't mean that science is excluded. It just plays a smaller role than some would give it. The passage that was read earlier, I think, nicely demonstrates the type of interaction that's anticipated. Coming almost at the end of the gospel, Jesus has travelled with his disciples for years, teaching, doing miracles. He's made multiple claims about who he is. The chapter prior to the verses we read uh, record his crucifixion. He is dead. 
uh, and the, the people who, who execute him know that that's a fact. Then at the start of chapter 20, Jesus' tomb, three days later, is found to be empty, by, first by Mary and then confirmed by Peter and John. Jesus then appears to Mary. He appears to the disciples and, and they have the opportunity to see Jesus and, and hear from him. But Thomas, one of those disciples, misses out. He wasn't there at the right time in the right place. And though his friends no doubt made all sorts of claims in the ensuing week, Thomas didn't consider his fellow disciples' report sufficient proof that Jesus' resurrection was a fact. Even though he knew these people, their words were not enough. It was just too hard to believe. While no one would have called it science at the time, doubting Thomas as he's come to be known, was unwilling to accept anything less than physical evidence to prove whether the resurrection had taken place or not. Like a scientist, he demanded more than just the claims that the other disciples were making, the words that the disciples were speaking. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and, and put my finger where the nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now that's the talk of a scientist, isn't it? Disgusting that he wants to put his hand into somebody's side. But notice that his statement reveals what he was actually thinking. He had already established a standard that he demanded this must be met. It's not that it's impossible to believe based upon others' word, but he refused to believe unless he was given a particular type of evidence. Now, very graciously, Jesus was willing to give him what he demanded. So a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas with the other disciples. And when that took place, Jesus didn't demand Thomas to just have faith. He told him to look, to touch, to do what was necessary to satisfy his doubts. When John wrote this account down, there's no way he could have anticipated that what we call science would have risen to such a, a privileged position of authority. And yet what Thomas did turns out not to have just been a benefit to Thomas, but to us today. Thomas got to do what many scientists would love to do. Think that one of the worst cases that we experience of arrogance today is to assume that we are the first humans to be sceptical. People 2,000 years ago are assumed to, oh, they're pre-enlightenment. And so when somebody claimed to rise from the dead, oh, they just went along with it. But that's a deliberate rejection of how things are reported, how they're recorded to have taken place. No doubt many things have changed since then. But if you are a sceptic, you're in very good company. And so we all can be grateful for Thomas, because Jesus willingly submitted himself to Thomas's demand for physical proof. And because Jesus really did physically rise from the dead, there was no reason to avoid this scrutiny. But have a look also at the response to the evidence. When the proof convinced him, Thomas was absolutely stunned. We have to be very careful to understand Thomas's reaction here as uh, to the evidence, that's the response of a Jewish man who was a product of his culture and his time. This is not, as some would like us to believe, merely an exclamation of surprises, as has become common in our society. Oh my God! 
There's nothing that could be further from the truth of what Thomas was actually saying. Thomas had been taught from birth that there's only one God, his creator, the one who has absolutely unquestionable authority, Yahweh, an all-powerful spirit who cannot be seen, who lives alone in unapproachable holiness. That's what Thomas thought about God. But when he was confronted with the evidence, Thomas puts it together with all that he'd learnt from childhood, what he'd heard from Jesus in his teaching, in his demonstration, and concludes that if Jesus has physically risen from the dead, then he is, as he claimed to be, God. God was standing there in front of Thomas in the person of Jesus. The evidence is interpreted for us just as science interprets facts. Jesus is God is the necessary conclusion that we must come to in light of Jesus' resurrection. And Paul and many since have acknowledged that all of Christianity depends on whether Jesus physically rose from the dead or not. And yet in this, we need to recognise that scepticism is not a bad thing. Scepticism is the common response because we don't like getting fooled. Being swindled by a scammer, ripped off by a con man, it leaves us angry. And so our desire for a scientific validation of God makes sense. We don't want to accept something that's not true, and nor should we. It would be reckless for us to base our lives on something that's just made up. But in Thomas's interaction with Jesus, we are given the proof that we need. Jesus then goes on to make clear that Thomas's experience is not going to be the experience of every single person who doubts. We can tell God what we want to see before we'll put our trust in him, but Thomas' experience is not the guarantee that God's just going to go along and give everybody what they want. Jesus' next words indicate that it's actually highly unlikely that he's going to provide anything remotely resembling scientific proof for each one of us that doubts. Verse 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have belief. Blessed are those who who have not seen and yet have believed. With these words, Jesus makes clear that most of us won't see, and yet we can still believe. Not through blind faith, but based upon the testimony of others. And so for us, who live a lot longer in time, uh, distanced in time than me and when I studied physio, the biblical account is the primary way that God can be investigated that Jesus can be investigated. As we read about Jesus, as we meet Jesus in the words of Scripture, we meet God. And it becomes very clear that far from irrelevant, he needs to be placed at the centre of our lives. He needs to be recognised, as Thomas does, that he is Lord, that he gets the right to, to call the shots in our lives. And so my encouragement again is to set aside time to read the Gospels. Read about Jesus and and see what are the claims that he makes about himself. There's still a couple of weeks of Discover to Go. Come along on Tuesday night and check out what Jesus' claims were, why we would believe those claims. We don't allow science to be the lone voice on art or beauty or love. And I think it's worth asking whether we've allowed science to be the lone voice on another subject that is outside of its area of expertise. If history confirms that Jesus lived, 
that he died and that his disciples were fully convinced that he rose from the dead, then that is a claim that we all need to investigate using the most appropriate tools for the task. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he reveals God uh, to us. We thank you so much that uh, although science is a good thing and it's provided us with many great opportunities, it's provided us with, with things that are a benefit to our lives, we can also recognise that even though it's done these great things, it's not all-powerful. It, it isn't the ultimate authority on all things. And so we thank you for Jesus and that he comes to reveal God to us. And so I pray for Christians who are here tonight uh, who need encouragement to look again to Jesus and see in him uh, the one who provides answers to our doubts that, that is the revelation of you. And they can take great confidence in that. I pray for any who are here who are, who are sceptics, who are doubting and not really sure. Pray that they would take the time that's required to actually investigate Jesus, to investigate the claims that he made and that through that, uh, that they would come to an understanding of who they are and who you are. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.